So on the full moon meditation vigil, the theme of the talk was uh, looking at the, the the components of waking up in different parts of our life. And so, you know, there's a, a waking up in the spiritual dimension. There's the kind of growing up, so doing the work in, a, in a, an emotional sphere. And there's the cleaning up, which is, you know, kind of looking at the imprinted patterns or belief systems that have caused obscurations and color our motives, our drives, our belief systems, and need attending to. And, you know, certainly having lived in monasteries where I see people um, refrain from growing up or cleaning up, but are totally committed to waking up, there's a... um, a bias. It's not even. There's choppiness and there's places of suffering that kind of suffuse their life. And so, as a result of my own personal experience and as a result of seeing what happens when one isn't committed to these areas, this has been really a priority. But one of the things which is really helpful to do is to keep the balancing of like the places where we're not woken up with contemplating where we are woken up, you know? to contemplate where there isn't suffering rather than to focus on where there is suffering. And one of the things that's really important is, is, is that in the, in the journey of growing up and the journey of cleaning up is to focus what's, what's grown up, to focus on what's cleaned up. And, you know, I was living in uh, a Bayagiri monastery for six months and um, one of the women who was living there, she and I were friends and sharing. Her name was Ginger. And in the course of getting to know her a little bit better, I remember encouraging her to do a particular practice. And her face looked at me with such disgust. Like I had just asked her to clean out a, the pit toilet without any gloves and without a shovel or something. And it was just like, she was like, you know, reeling with with a with a sense of like this is this is way too much. Like this is really way too much. And what I asked her to do was to contemplate her own goodness. And and I think for many of us it's not something that we're used to doing. And it it cuts into our North American value system that if we contemplate about our own goodness, it means that we're being boastful and prideful. It, it is not something that is skillful or useful. It's self-inflammatory, or inf- we're inflating ourselves. But in a traditional Buddhist context, it's a traditional practice to do, is to contemplate our own goodness. And in a, some cultures, like in the Sri Lankan culture, they make a practice of doing this from the time they're little. You know, so they, they, they take, they, they, they give a book or they make a book and they write down 
acts of generosity that they have done since the time they were little. So if the family went to the monastery and offered um, food or almsful or robes or, you know, helped build a building, they would write it down. And there's something about the exquisiteness of recollecting the good things that one has done. When one is low or feeling physically not well or um, there's been, you know, significant kinds of loss in one's life or in the process of dying, that it's a remarkable thing to have a collection of what one has done that has been wholesome. So that's a collection of, of stories about one's generosity. But I think one can narrow in on that, dial in on that, where it's not just one's acts of generosity, but also the talents that one has, the strengths that one has, the emotional maturity that one has actually cultivated, and the places of you know, the things that one has done in terms of cleaning up, where one has made conscious what previously has been unconscious, so that one is tracking all of these things and reflecting on them as a contemplation, not as a pat yourself on the back, but as a remembering of the kind of work that one has done, you know. And I think, you know, in our... In our in our world, in our culture, in our society, we tend to have overdeveloped analytical minds. And one of the consequences of that is, is, is that we're really brilliant at seeing the one little thing that's not right. And so, you know, there can be a whole picture that we've drawn, which is actually stunning, when we focus on the one thing that's not quite right. I, you probably have never seen this picture. Ajahn Chah was the forest meditation master of the tradition that I was first ordained into. And that was the... He was the I met him in Thailand. And he was he was a magnificent meditation master and he had a huge kind of capacity to help people and teach them. And somebody who was an artist was um, commissioned to do a, a watercolor or a pencil pastel of him. And it's huge, you know. And it is spectacular because it's like he just, his presence, his power, his, uh, he did, it comes completely alive. But when the people were watching this artist draw it, you know, when he finished it, he looked at the one thing that he had seen he'd done, which was nobody could see that it was a mistake. But to him, there was something that he did that was not perfect. And this spectacular picture was, all it was to him was the one thing that was wrong. You know? And I think for many of us, there's a way in which our attention focuses on the bits that need work, the part that is suffering, the things that need cleaning up, the stuff that needs growing up. And we can do that not in a way that supports us, but that actually undermines us. When we really feel strength, when we know the things that we're talented in and have confidence in them, it's a lot easier to bring in the complementary skills 
to work with the stuff that still needs developing. A parallel, well, it's not on the human realm, but in another realm. You know, when I was living in Australia, and they were talking a lot about um, doing work with, they didn't call it reforestation. It was to bring back native species in the bush. It's a different word when it's the bush. I can't remember what it's called. But they wouldn't start in like a desert oasis. They wouldn't start in a wasteland. They'd start in actually an ecosystem that was well established. And then they would see some of the species that had died out. And they would bring in the species that had died out into a well-established ecosystem. And those projects of reforestation were infinitely more successful than the ones when they started with like kind of a flat ground and they were just going to try and figure it out. Yeah. And for ourselves, the ecosystems of our own hearts, our minds, our bodies, our psyches, our own development are the same. If we start with the health, if we move from health and then look at, well, what kinds of things need complementary partnering or what kinds of things need a little bit more attention or what kinds of things needs a little bit more care, you know? You know, what parts of my health are a little bit ropey? Do I need a little bit more exercise? Do I, I need to be drinking clearer water? Do I have to be a little bit more careful with my diet? So rather than looking at the whole thing as, as not okay, focusing on the healthy bits as the ground from which to see where can there be more. And our meditation practice is often focused on the breathing or, you know, the first noble truth is on focusing on what is suffering, focusing what we are wanting or not wanting. Our attention can use the kind of bias of our North American culture to drill in and dial in in a way that is absolutely not exactly where we need, the opposite of where we need to be, you know. So, you know, I'm in email contact with a number of different people, and sometimes, you know, people are just, they contact me, so they're in distress, and they just write me, and they say, you know, help. So one person contacted me from Asia, and the meditation, she'd been to a meditation temple, and the meditation monk was teaching on the loathsomeness of the body. And so she was doing the practice, and she wrote me an email, and she was very distressed, because, you know, all of a sudden, all she could see was everything that was disgusting about the body. And she didn't want to eat, and she felt it was, everything was disgusting, and it was like, you know, I just want to die. And I thought, you know, just, you know... What, what is needed is to focus on the luminous nature of the mind, to focus on the, the beauty of the awakened mind and the, and the qualities of the Dhamma and the virtues of the Sangha and to focus on your own goodness, not focusing on the love and causes of the, of the body. And so, you know, I don't know, 12 hours passed and she wrote me another email and things had settled. And so what one needs to remember that these particular practices, like, you know, loathfulness of the body, is a contextual practice that was particularly useful when people were really struggling with sexual desire that was activated by visual contact. It's not a kind of universal smear that you put on everything. It was very, very specific. And, in fact, what happened even in the time of the Buddha was is that the monks got into terrible trouble 
because they picked up this practice. They didn't use it with wisdom. And somebody had the wrong view that if you actually died, that would actually be a release from suffering and was helping the monks to commit suicide. So the Buddha went away on a retreat and came back, and it's like, well, where are all the monks? (laughs) And 500 of them had committed suicide because they were doing the practice of asuba, and they'd gotten hold of the wrong end of the stick. And then there was somebody in the community who had a wrong view and was encouraging them to do that. And so it was on the basis of that context that he taught the the breath meditation as a way of you know, steadying the mind and stabilizing the qualities of easefulness and the qualities of goodness as a way of then having the capacity to be able to do what is needed to move either into focusing on the radiant nature of the mind or if the mind is consumed with sexual desire and that's been activated by visual contact than to be able to use a meditation practice that can give some space around. And I think for many of us, you know, it's not it's not our habit to think about the the resources that we have. You know, our talents, our resources, the work that we've done, the commitments that we've made, the things that we've actually have brought us to where we're at. And I think it is a very useful thing to do. In the same way that, you know, the reforestation projects in the in the bush work best when they're already starting with a well-established ecosystem that's balanced. So when we tune in to the degree of health that we have, physically, mentally, spiritually, that gives us the ground and the fortitude to open up to the territory that needs to be developed and do it in balance. Where it's just like, it's an extra species rather than a rewrite of the whole script. So that comes to mind as a reflection for this evening on, you know, sandwiched between Resurrection Friday and, or Crucifixion on Friday and Resurrection tomorrow. (laughs) <laughs> you know, and the whole kind of you know one of the challenges of having grown up in a Judeo-Christian kind of ethos is the, is the notion of original sin kind of gets translated into our psyches is that if we're born there's something fundamentally wrong with us and so we have a basic it's not uncommon for there to be a basic sense of that there's something basically wrong. And, you know, the suffering we experience in the world is an indication of that. We use that as proof. And it's the wrong understanding. You know, the nature of the mind is radiant. It's luminous. It's undefiled. It doesn't end. It was never... There was never anything wrong that created it. It was uncreated. You know, that part of the mind which is uncreated is completely without any kind of taints. There's nothing we have experienced or ever lived through that would have any capacity for 
in any way tainting or harming or damaging our essence. It's not possible. And so to balance the noble truth of looking at suffering and the developmental tasks that need to be done with the other side of seeing the wholesomeness of what's already there, together these two things then create fertile ground for being able to do work in a way where there's an emergence of well-being rather than a kind of a solidification around a wrong view and trying to find ways of eradicating it.